Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Both seem humble and let the people listening at home know that there was a standing ovation. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Denver. Uh, Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. Me? Oh, I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. (laughs) I'm John Lovett. (laughs) I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. We have a great show for you this evening. Um, business owner and community activist Wanda James is here. Uh, New, Color- New Era Colorado is also here. They are the largest. Yeah. All right. This is the largest youth voter mobilization organization in Colorado, one of the largest in the country. Um, You probably saw them on the way in. They were registering voters. Please see them if you haven't. Um, And also, if you haven't registered or you have friends that haven't registered, go register to vote, please. Uh, Right here in Colorado, you have the highest proportion of millennials in any swing state in the country. And most millennials aren't registered. So uh, you guys do a lot of good work here. Register your millennials, Colorado. <laughs> That's my message this evening. Get those millennials on the books. Get them registered. Books. Don't let them out of your sight. Get, your, get the form between their phones and their faces. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start with the news. As you guys know, here in Trump's America, we only fund our government in six-week increments <laughs> because we are an aging banana republic. Um, And so at midnight this evening, the whole thing shuts down, possibly. What will we do? Who will save the day? So here's the state of play. Right now, uh, both parties and both houses of Congress have made a deal that includes increases in defense spending that Republicans want, increases in other spending that Democrats want, including more funding for community health centers, disaster relief, opioid treatment, mental health initiatives, medical research, veterans health clinics, infrastructure, and funding the children's health insurance program for 10 years. So that's good news. In the Senate, thanks to the last shutdown, Mitch McConnell has also promised that after this deal is passed, he will hold an open process on a bill to protect the Dreamers. Allegedly. Allegedly. So what this means is, instead of starting the Senate debate with the Trump-cotton-keep-out-people-from-shithole-countries-act of 2017, 
which he was never going to do, which he was going to do before the shutdown. That was the plan, to start with the cotton bill. Now he's going to allow a vote on whatever bill can get the support of 60 senators. So now this brings us to the House of Representatives, where right now about 50 to 70 of the worst House Republicans hate the Senate's budget deal because it spends too much money keeping people healthy, I guess. Um, <laughs> so that means that Paul Ryan needs Democratic votes to pass this bill and keep the government open. Uh, this is the same Paul Ryan who has refused to allow any vote on any bill to protect the Dreamers unless Trump okays it. So, Dan, what do the Democrats do in the House of Representatives with this leverage that they have? <laughs> well, here's what they shouldn't do. Do Paul Ryan's job for him. Right. Like, I mean, let's have a little history here. The reason that, we, that Dreamers are facing the threat of deportation is because Donald Trump unilaterally decided to end the DACA program. And Democrats want to solve that problem. Donald Trump claims to that he wants to solve that problem. Paul Ryan claims he wants to solve that problem. And if Paul Ryan needs Nancy Pelosi to deliver votes to him to fund the government when Paul Ryan is in charge of the Republicans in the House, then he better give Nancy Pelosi something. And I think it is totally worth asking for the same deal that Mitch McConnell gave Chuck Schumer, which is, let's have a vote. And the reason Paul Ryan does not want to do that is because he knows it'll pass. So, so it looked yesterday on Wednesday like Nancy Pelosi was heading that way. So she spoke on the floor for a record-breaking eight hours. What do we think of the speech, Alyssa? What do we think of, what do we think of Nancy's move yesterday? Well, I know you're a big Nancy Pelosi. First, guy. we know my nickname for her is Nasty Pelosi. <laughs> In the best possible way. In the best possible way. Um, she killed it. I mean, she was down there. I, I mean, like, I thought the four-inch heels, like, she would have scored the same points without them. But, I mean, she, she killed it, and everybody was there. But, you know, at the end of the day, what does it do? Well, so th that's the question. So Nancy wah, wah. Pelosi gives this very long speech, and yet today it does not look like she is actually whipping the entire caucus to vote against this bill. She's saying she's certainly against it unless Ryan holds a vote for the Dreamers. But there's like a lot of confusion about whether other Democrats are supposed to vote against the bill or can just vote their conscience. What do you think's going on here, Tommy? I don't know, man. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think the, the unfortunate reality is we have little leverage in the Senate, which Schumer has used some would say deftly to get us to here and to the, yeah. the budget deal that's currently on the floor. It, it has gotten a promise from a you know, notorious liar, Mitch McConnell, on DACA. So we're not thrilled yet, but we got something. We got CHIP. We got some other budget priorities. In the House, we have even less leverage. And she gave an impassioned eight-hour speech that I think went a little ways towards, again, highlighting this issue and how important it is and showing the Democratic Party's commitment to getting a fix for the Dreamers who were left hung out to dry by Donald Trump, as Dan mentioned earlier. But the machinations have just begun in terms of this process. It's hard to predict. But like, it's so hard to take the Republicans seriously for anything. This, like 75% of Republicans support Dreamers. Right. So like, why not just do a good faith effort and do that, do that vote first? If everyone's so... <laughs> like that's, to me... So it's is, like, do it. George Bush was out there today saying, do it. Mitt Romney was saying, do it. Everyone's like, do it. So just do it. And then, you know, you can drive the government off the cliff. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, is a, it is a strange phenomenon, which is we are trying to use the few levers we have 
to get Republicans to do what they claim to support. The reality is they would rather not deal with this issue. They don't actually support doing something for the Dreamers. They might support doing for something for the Dreamers with a gun to their heads, political gun to their heads, but they don't want to do it. Paul Ryan says, I can only go for something that Trump wants, or I can only go for something that the House Freedom Caucus wants. And he acts like he's a hostage, like he's not an agent in these events, but he is. It's, you know, the Freedom Caucus, Donald Trump, they're holding a super soaker at him. And he's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, take whatever you want. Because uh, the truth is he has the votes. He has the votes at any moment. So the reality too is we're actually pursuing two parallel strategies at once in part because we don't know how this will shake out. Trying to get a vote in the Senate from Mitch McConnell that's fair is about jamming Paul Ryan, right? Mm -hmm. There is still a chance we can get this done even if Paul Ryan refuses to promise a fair vote for the Dreamers. I guess what I'm saying is this might be the most that Paul Ryan will ever get jammed because... Because <laughs> he's going to lose? Well, I was saying, like, yeah. I, what, I, what I'm trying to figure out is why Nancy Pelosi <laughs> and the Democratic caucus can stand up and say to Paul Ryan, you need anywhere from 50 to 60 Democratic votes to pass this bill because you have 50 to 60 defections in your own caucus because the Freedom Caucus doesn't want to do this. You want those votes? We love the budget deal that passed. We think it's bipartisan. It's great. We agree with the Senate. All we're asking is to get the same deal from you that the Senate Democrats got from Mitch McConnell, which is a promise that you hold an up or down vote on the DREAM Act knowing that it will pass this House. And I don't understand... Uh, I just... I don't understand why the Democrats don't say, yeah, let's try that. So play it out, Dan. What's the, what's the downside of them doing that? Well, at first I would say this about Nancy Pelosi's strategy, which mm -hmm. is we worked with her for all eight years Barack Obama was president, and she is as savvy a legislator as ever walked the halls of the Capitol. That's for sure. And she knows what she's doing. Yeah. And if she were to... There are members who are nervous about this. They're nervous about the politics. They're nervous about how the shutdown played out when the Senate... Democrats wave the white flag after breakfast, basically. And so that... So it didn't last as long as Nancy Pelosi's speech yeah. on the floor of the House. <laughs> <laughs> and so instead of going to these members who are, might be in uh, the, you know, closer districts or might think they have tough races and saying, you have to vote this way, she's going to let them vote their conscience, but she's making it very clear the way she's going to vote and trying to get them to come to decision on their own. This is how she did this for a lot of really tough votes in the Obama administration, and every single time she delivered, and that's the best way to do it. Because if you try to rule with a hammer, it's not gonna work. And, but so here's the danger of, of the process. So let's say the Democrats do not give the votes. The bill fails, the mm -hmm. bipartisan deal, which funds things that we care about, the additional four years of All those good things I just talked about. All those things, and then what the House does is then it turns around and passes with only Republican votes, another six-week CR or a, or a three-month CR. That goes to the Senate. We know there are more than 60 votes to keep the government open because that's what happened the last time. So the same Democrats plus Republicans who voted to end the shutdown will then vote for that. And so we will... So now we lose all the budget deal and all that all other the, good so stuff. There, so everything that was good in the budget deal, which is better than I think we thought we could possibly get in completely Republican-controlled government, goes away and the Dreamers still aren't helped. And so I think that is part of the calculus of some of the members who believe very strongly that Paul Ryan will never put a bill, a Dream, a dream Act on the floor of the House because it only takes two dozen House members to call for a vote, a re-vote for his leadership, which is why Boehner quit. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that, their view is we're never going to get the Dream Act, so let's at least take this because we can help some people and we have so little opportunities to help people. Uh, when we're in the minority like this. That's the, the counter-argument. Does, 
Will Ryan lose some people on this vote regardless because of the spending? I mean, they just yeah. passed a $1.5 yeah. trillion yeah. Dollar tax yeah. cut. These crazy assholes that have hijacked the government, the House of Representatives, the Freedom Caucus, it's like the dumbest people you can put into a fishbowl and call themselves the Freedom Caucus. They all they were, going to, they were going to explode the debt ceiling in 2011 because they were so offended by Barack Obama's spending. Suddenly we're throwing, what, $300 billion over two years of additional military and domestic spending? I mean, like... Like, I'm not saying that I think these guys are coming at these from a, a deep well of principle, but there's got to be a few of them that are offended by this deal. Yeah, no, they, they think they, well, that's why he needs Democratic votes. They think they have lost about 50 to 70 Republicans on this, which is why you'd think that Democrats have leverage. But you're right, Dan, in the scenario, I guess if the government shuts down, Ryan says we open the government with a quick CR. And so basically, what's the, how's the House Democrats' problem is the Senate Democrats then turning around and saying, oh, if we get a CR from Ryan, we'll just keep the government funding and we won't have this deal. Yeah, so why walk the plank if the Senate Democrats yeah. aren't going to do the I same? Also, yeah, yeah. Like I, I was, what Dan said I think is really important. It's a simple question. Do you believe political pressure can get Paul Ryan to promise uh, a vote on the DREAM Act? If you believe the answer to that is yes, it's worth going all the way for it. But it really not, may not be the case. He really may not be able to put himself in a position. And he has it, already, he's been asked this question and he's answered, he said no. And he squirrels his way out of it by saying, I want to protect the dreamers. I'm totally committing to doing for something for the dreamers, uh, but I'm going to do something that the president supports. And what that means is I will not bring a clean dream act. I will do a dream act, but it will have some noxious anti-immigration piece of it right. so I can get the house freedom caucus along and keep my speakership. So I guess, if we wake up tomorrow, by the time people listen to this podcast, and the Democrats have caved and, and they give Ryan the votes he needs to pass it, what are the prospects of a deal to protect the Dreamers at that point? What comes next then? Because so now, so now the Senate moves on to a, a, a bill. Perhaps it seems like you could get 60 votes in the Senate because there's enough normal Republicans there who want to do this that you could maybe get a bill out of the Senate. Not guaranteed, but maybe one that people could swallow. And then, does it just die in the House? Because again, Ryan says, no, I don't want to bring this bill up. That's a real fear. Yes. I mean, that's what happened. Like, we've, we've seen this movie before in 2013, after Republicans were so concerned about their poor showing with Latinos and, and, other, and other folks, that they had to get right on immigration. And so Marco Rubio, of all fucking people, got together with Chuck Schumer, <laughs> a bunch of other people, and they passed a a good bill. It had some things Democrats did not like. There was a lot of border security in there. And it went to the House. And the House said, we cannot vote on the Senate bill. We're going to start over. And that meant they were never going to do anything. And then uh, they reset Marco Rubio back to his day one settings <laughs> um, to see what would happen when they ran it again. <laughs> and he actually went the opposite way. I didn't mean to interrupt him. Yeah. I, get, I mean, you can always feel free to interrupt with a, with a Rubio or a Ryan attack. Or, like like a, a, always, or a Westworld yeah. reference. Um, I mean, look, I guess stepping back from this, the problem is, no matter, how, no matter how you calculate this, we are in the minority and we do not have the power necessary to really get this stuff done. And we were, look, we wanted Democrats to stand firm in the Senate against a long-term funding bill. We made a big deal about that at Crooked Media, and um, the government shut down for a couple days, and they got this promise out of McConnell, and we were disappointed when the government, when, you know, when they just caved um, as much as anyone, but when you really look at the whole situation now, the long-term answer here is to fucking win the election in November, because it's just like... It because think about it this way. 
So you take the bill that can get 60 in the Senate, mm-hmm. and if we do well in these elections, we might have more Democrats, right? It might be a 50-50 Senate, we might have the majority, and then Nancy Pelosi controls the floor of the House. Right. So but she, she can pass whatever the Senate passes, or she can send something over to the Senate, which the Senate can, can then amend it back, and then you've got to send it to Trump's desk. And then, Trump, and then we have to force Trump to veto. But, yes. but look, but, then, also, but how, many, how many dreamers have lost their status? Yeah, I, too I, many. I mean, that's but, the problem. But, that's but, why we're doing it. I it's also like, think, look, I, I totally agree with you. I think that's, but, you know, when we extracted this promise from Mitch McConnell during that uh, flickering shutdown, the government <laughs> eclipse. Uh, <laughs> 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 Um, this is our episode title. <laughs> <laughs> shut down. Rack up. All right. I don't know. Uh, just a flicker. Just a flicker just in like, the lights. Did, did the government shut down or did I just have a weird brain thing? <laughs> uh, what were we talking about? The shutdown. So <laughs> when we extracted that promise, we said at the time, there's one of two ways this can go. It can either be meaningless and it was wrong to give up on the shutdown when they did, or there's a chance that it could be made meaningful. We don't know what the outcome of that process will be in the Senate. I think, and we can't control what Mitch McConnell does, but we can control what we do. And I think we have to push Democratic senators yeah. uh, and Republican senators to make clear that, that they stick to what they said, which is a fair process on, in the Senate that protects the dreamers and that you know, even goes along with border security. Because by the way, this dance about the wall, we've done it once before, and at the end of it, we gave him his fucking wall. Yeah. And you know what? We'll give him the wall again. Everybody just brace for it, it's happening. It's the only way we can protect the dreamers, and we already made that decision once, and I think we should make it again. It is a possibility to get a bill out of the Senate that does border security in a way that we don't necessarily agree with, but that protects the dreamers. It is possible for Mitch McConnell to get Donald Trump to think it's a good idea because Donald Trump- uh, Has a fit of- as Whatever, he reads something and was like, yeah, great. It sounds like a good deal. Sure. I'll sign it. Yeah. He, and then he, like, he tells Paul Ryan to pass it. It's not inconceivable. It's not done. That's the hopeful scenario, that someone gets out of the Senate. Somehow, they get, you know, they get Trump in a room. They sort of like yeah. lock Stephen Miller in a closet. <laughs> no, they're, they're giving him a bunch of headshots, and they slip the bill in there. <laughs> like, the fuck did I sign? <laughs> they, they have, someone, someone gets onto the set of Fox and Friends and yeah. looks into the camera and says, sign the bill, Trump. John, sign the bill. John. You know that These are good ideas. I know that is. Yeah, no, that's I'm going to go on Fox and Friends and deliver a message to the president. Right. And so it is true. Don't tell them. If we have, if we somehow, we get something out of the Senate, we get Trump, then it's, we have the maximum pressure on Paul Ryan and that's our best chance. It's still our best chance and everyone should fight for that. I think that's, yeah. that's what we need to do right now. So you're right. We have to keep the pressure on Democratic senators and Republican senators to do what they said they were going to do and pass a fucking bill out of the Senate. So, um, all right. Let's talk about the White House. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. The White House Staff Secretary, Rob Porter, resigned Uh-oh. on Wednesday after his two ex-wives revealed that he physically abused them. Uh, one of the women released pictures of herself with a black eye that came from Porter punching her in the face, and the other revealed that she had filed an emergency restraining order against him. Before Porter resigned, multiple White House aides, including Chief of Staff John Kelly, went out of their way to defend him. Kelly called him a man of true integrity and honor and a trusted professional. (laughs) Multiple outlets then reported that senior White House aides have known about the allegations since late last year. And since that time, he was elevated, helped write the State of the Union, 
Alyssa, let's start with what does the White House Staff Secretary do and why is it such an important job? So there are so many funny things about this. Well, it's actually not funny at all, but you know. Uh, So the staff secretary is the person who receives all of the documents that people want to send, like all the problems they were having with Trump, how people were just like leaving shit on his desk. With a proper staff secretary, that doesn't happen. They get the information, they check it, they make sure that everybody has signed off, that's like a stakeholder in the memo, and they run the entire process that gets briefings to the president. Um, They usually have a TSSCI clearance because they handle all, you know, foreign policy documents. What what does that stand for? uh, It stands for uh, secret compartmented information. It's the top secret in the, yeah, SCI is the compartments. The best of all the clearances. The best of all the clearances. It's the one they gave Kushner. It's the one they gave Kushner. We'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) They actually haven't given it to him yet. (laughs) So the thing about it is the office that the staff secretary actually sits in is called a skiff because the person should have SCI clearance. So it's hilarious he sits in an office with, you know, higher clearance than he has. But, um, you know, like something funny to think about, like you see that he's just sort of like floated around. I just wanted to, in case you guys didn't know who other staff secretaries had been, uh, David Gergen was staff secretary, John Podesta was staff secretary, uh, Harriet Myers was staff secretary, wow. and our staff secretary when we first got to the White House, Lisa Brown, was from the American Constitution Center and is now the legal counsel, the general counsel at Georgetown University. So they're like some, proper some real professionals. People. Proper yeah. professionals. Credentialed. Um, so, Tommy, Porter's ex-wives, uh, Coldy Holderness and Jenny Willoughby, also said that the FBI asked them about these allegations during their background check and specifically asked whether they believed Porter could be blackmailed, to which Willoughby answered yes because so many people knew of his abusive behavior. Are you surprised that that didn't keep him out of the job? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Talk about the FBI background checks and what, what, why they asked those questions. This fucking guy. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, the, the FBI background check, you, you fill out a form, you talk about where you've lived, what your jobs were, who your roommates were, arrests, drug use, felony offense, like everything in your life. It's incredibly intrusive. They interview you about it. They vet it with people, friends, and family. And the whole thing is designed to make sure you're worthy of trust uh, of national security secrets. And so, ultimately, that process, like the FBI leads it and runs it, but it's adjudicated by the White House. So the president can say, you know what? I know so-and-so made a couple mistakes along the way, but let's give them the clearance. The fact that they were sitting on this information, that these women felt so strongly about this guy and how fucking evil he was to them, that they told the FBI, they said he couldn't be trusted, they said he could be blackmailed, and then they just like turned a blind eye to it is fucking appalling. Now, we shouldn't be surprised. This is a president who sexually assaulted a dozen women. This is a a president of the United States who endorsed a man who uh, molested children, right? So like there, they have taken the moral depravity to another level, but this one is truly shocking. And then hours before this information is revealed, you have John Kelly, the chief of staff, coming out and giving this quote about his honor and integrity when he should have known full well. Now, the reality is the process to defend him was probably run by Hope Hicks, his current girlfriend, who was probably convinced by this scumbag that it was all bullshit. Uh, and now, but they all look terrible. But I mean, in, in, in a normal environment where you had a non-jellyfish as Speaker of the House, you had a non-Republican Senate in House, people who actually exercised oversight, we would be investigating tomorrow why this guy, without a clearance, was looking at every piece of paper. And why Jared Kushner, <laughs> by the way, 
who's running the Middle East peace process and like hanging out with all the Chinese. Also He's almost has done. A, He's almost has done. an interim clearance. The entire election was fought over Hillary Clinton's emails and her ability to protect classified information. And these people are as reckless as anything I've ever heard in my life. It is appalling. It's not just, <clears throat> it's not just that Paul Ryan is not doing oversight. Paul Ryan is actually blocking oversight on this because Democrats have been requesting for almost a year now information on how the White House processes clearances because it is unprecedented for people in the positions of the highest sensitivity to be operating for months and months and even a year with these interim clearances, essentially rejecting the recommendations of the FBI and the intelligence community about these people's fitness for office. And And they're all getting the PDB? Yeah. 14 people have the PDB. Yeah. Also, it's not like the FBI keep the, kept that information no. hidden from the White House. No. It's not like the FBI heard that there was uh, someone applying for a security clearance whose ex-spouses believed that he could be blackmailed. I mean, that, that is... Can we just... I just have a very personal example I'll share. Sure. Um, so we all filled out our SF-86 forms together. How, pers- how personal is this going to be? It's <laughs> <laughs> just personal for me. Just personal for me. Flop sweat right here. Where they're like have you smoked marijuana? I was like, oh my God, this is a thing? It's a thing. And so I was so afraid because they teach you, they teach you that lying is worse than any bad thing you could have done, right? And so this goes to like Jared Kushner and his 97 revisions to his SF-86 form. So when you've gone through it, but so I answered mine very honestly and I got a call and they're like, you've got a little bit of a problem. And uh, I had to go see our chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, and he's like, I understand you're a good person, um, but you're going to be drug tested like randomly for a year. And I was like, that's fine. That's fine. But like, this was something so small in comparison. I had a conversation. I knew he knew about it. I felt guilty about it for a long time. I don't anymore. But, but that's not true. <laughs> Clearly. I'm doing good here in Colorado. <laughs> But that's actually really important because one thing they tell you when you're going through this process is you can have done things that were bad in the past, but they need to make sure that you're trustworthy now. And that's making sure that you're honest about what your past, what happened in your past so that you can't be blackmailed. Blackmail Blackmail is the fear. Is the the number one thing that they're worried about. They're worried about putting someone in a position like staff secretary who literally determines what the president sees and does not see and have someone having access to that person and being able to influence that person. Give and me those documents. I want to see those papers or I will tell the world about your spousal abuse. That, right. is, what the, that is the thing they are afraid of. And, and it is extremely dangerous. This is, it, I, you know, I even, you know, this got put into the basket of Trump bad staff stuff and Gorka's ridiculous and he had a Hungarian warrant for whatever the hell. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> Being a douchebag, yeah. For shooting, for shooting a rifle on the anniversary of for wearing a suede the Nazis vest. winning in 32. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but Gorka was trying to get invited to meetings and like getting booked on Fox and Friends. This is a new level of sensitivity. This is worse than Kushner. I mean, this is appalling. And if this were a Democrat, if this were a Democrat, you can, this would be the source of a giant scandal, months of hearings, every single committee. It's as it goes. Rightly so. And rightly so. This is as close to the president as a person can get. They were, and and the White House knew about it. I was, Don McGahn apparently reportedly got a phone call about it. White House counsel, Don McGahn. White House counsel, Don McGahn gets a call about it. woman. 
What? From a third, third woman. From a third woman uh, warning them about this. And I think two things about that. One, it was his responsibility to get that guy out of that job immediately. And two, the world we're living in, he did not think the fact that his staff secretary uh, is a serial spousal abuser was the hardest legal problem on his desk that day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it, but like it just, it seems self-evident to me that these awful, awful human beings who work in that White House right now are more worried about a story redounding on the president's reputation because they know he assaulted women. They know the horrific things he was accused of in divorce filings by his ex-wife. They know he's a bad person who, if you fire someone for spousal abuse, suddenly they might make, suddenly might show just this much. They actually give a shit about protecting women. Mm. That, and, and that they might hear about it for Donald Trump. Not even Ivanka cares that, about the women. That is the thread that runs through Roy Moore, Roger Ailes, Bill O'Reilly in this, and how Steve Wynn. All of those. Steve Wynn. Steve Wynn. Which is the White House believes from Donald Trump to John Kelly to Sarah Huckabee Sanders that to believe a woman is to admit that Donald Trump is guilty. Right. And like, unless there, there is one caveat to that hard-fought rule in the White House, which is if it is a woman accusing a Democrat, then they will immediately call for the resignation of yeah. a Democrat. Yeah. I want to talk about John Kelly, too. This was supposed to be the adult in the room. He was hailed as, was hailed as a true leader when he came to the White House you know, briefing room to give a speech once. A uh, moderating force for Trump. So far, he has refused to apologize for falsely attacking a Democratic congresswoman, blamed the Civil War on a lack of compromise, said that Robert E. Lee was honorable, said that Dreamers didn't sign up for DACA because they were too lazy to get off their asses, and now this. Does Donald Trump attract bad people or does Trump make people bad? That is my oh, question. That's a good question. It's the, it's the ancient question, John. Nature or nurture? We've grappled with this. I gotta say, I was one of the people that, like, you have to be a pretty impressive person to rise to get a four-star or to be a combatant commander. You have done a lot of things well in your life, and I was impressed by that, obviously. Everyone in this room is. He also lost his son in combat, and then just days later gave a speech at a funeral service for two other Marines who had been killed in combat that is one of the most uh, moving, yeah, gracious, dignified, decent things you've ever read. And I let that like make me emotional and think that there must be like a strain of goodness that ran through this man. I really am deeply regret feeling that way because, you know, when you talk about DACA recipients getting off their lazy asses mm. and some of the things he said, I mean, it's just sort of the same nativist, coded racist language that you hear from everyone else in the Trump administration. But it, and the thing that's so interesting, though, is that every other member of the military has said the opposite. So that's what makes him so outrageous. You know, even yeah. Mattis today, like whatever, it's low-hanging fruit, but he's like, if you are DACA and you're in the military, you won't be deported, right? right? But like every time Donald Trump has come out and said something, that when he wanted to ban transgender from the military, all of the Joint Chiefs stood up and said, we're not fucking doing this. But like, Kelly is like the outlier. Like, I just, I never saw that coming. I was like, my tweets did not age well. I was like, yay, John <laughs> Kelly, it's a new day. <laughs> I mean, I knew, 
we, we knew that he was a hardliner on immigration, that he was going to be nativist like Donald Trump from stories about him at the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah. We knew that as he went up the chain of command, as he got closer to general, he became more extreme on immigration. That, that was in the works. A lot of this other stuff, though, like the lazy asses and the attacking Frederica and talking about civil war and all that bullshit, like that I definitely did not see coming. No. That's so much has happened in six months. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, just to, to keep up the happy talk, um, <laughs> I want to cover a, a, a brewing constitutional crisis in the state of Pennsylvania we have. So, after the 2010 elections, Republicans won full control of Pennsylvania, of the state government, and they gerrymandered the shit out of the congressional map. Um, they now control 13 of 18 congressional seats, just to show you how crazy this is. Uh, Democrats in 2012 got 51% of the vote and they won only five of 18 seats. Um, So, in June of 2017, Pennsylvania's League of Women Voters filed suit to have the map invalidated as unconstitutional. (laughs) So, the state Supreme Court recently agreed in a five-to-two decision They ordered the Republican legislature and Democratic governor to submit a new map by tomorrow, February 9th. They said that the the League of Women Voters is right, the map is unconstitutional, submit a new map by the 9th. And they said, if you can't do that, the court will draw a map itself. So Republicans then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court denied the Republican request uh, to delay the ruling. Uh, until after 2016. It's not quite a happy ending yet, guys. Um, So now, some Republican legislators are threatening to impeach the five members of the state Supreme Court that ruled in the majority in this case. They all happen to be Democrats. Um, It requires a majority in the House and two-thirds of the Senate to impeach judges, which the Republicans have. Dan. Yes, John. Uh... Gerrymandering expert. How much does this matter politically? What, what are the stakes here politically if the, if the map is redrawn? Well, it could be what decides control of the House. If, this, if the maps are drawn as they should have been drawn to begin with, they are drawn in a fair way, right. depending on how it's done, Democrats could pick up three to five seats. Which is huge. Huge. We're trying to win 23 Democratic seats to win the House. Year. Three to five is, yes. that's, yeah. And so... In, in a normal Democratic year, they pick up three to five. In a wave year, they could pick up more. And so this is ground, now ground zero in the battle for the House, which is why Republicans are considering such an extreme measure. Because if this happens, and then just Democrats reform, as you would expect in districts that Hillary won, Republicans are unlikely to hold the House. And so this is going to be a real test of whether there, there are any norms that, re, that the Republicans are willing to adhere to like, if I were a betting person, I think they will try the impeachment thing, because we saw what happened in North Carolina when the Democrats won the governorship, and then the Republicans, in, in their last session, changed all the laws with the outgoing Republican governor to dramatically reduce the ability of the Democratic governor to, to implement policy and make it easier to vote, right? Because the big thing was Republicans won all their power by undergoing massive voter suppression, cutting polling places, and, and so Democrats were going to fix that because, you know, people should be able to vote. And so Republicans then took the power from the, from the governor and gave it to the locally elected election boards, which were mostly Republican. And so, like, we are staring down the barrel of a true constitutional crisis here. And hopefully there's a Republican adult who will stand up. But yeah. 
I have yet to find that person in the last 17 months. So that's the pol- what politically could happen. Tommy, what's the institutional damage here that, that could happen? I mean, I think this is one of those moments when you teeter between democracy to banana republic. Right? Like on his way out the door, Hugo Chavez named 13 new judges. He was like, eh, you know, we just lost a whole bunch in the legislature. Let's just pack the courts. And when you show that kind of totally reckless disregard for institutions, especially the judiciary, when you refuse to play by the rules and you pick up your ball and go home or in this instance, beat the shit out of the other guy and declare yourself the winner. I think like that is a truly frightening scenario and one that as we've seen with everything else in the Trump administration, like if that kind of activity starts to get normalized and not be like a, you know, nationwide uproar, it's something that could be frightening. Yeah. Love it. What do you think? Yes. I agree with all of that. Um, you know, what we are seeing at the state level is what I think we need to worry about happening next at the national level or in some cases is already happening. Again, it comes back to uh, the way these guys are like raptors and they've been testing the fences. And what they've discovered, <laughs> what they've discovered is a lack of interest among voters and people who don't vote, uh, who would largely vote against them, uh, atomization of the way we consume media, uh, the declining power of shame in our culture. All of it removed the social barriers to deeply immoral behavior on the part of politicians. They see that with Trump. They saw it with McConnell. They see it with Ryan. They see it with uh, politicians every single day. They saw it with Roy Moore in in Alabama. And the discovery, the scary discovery, is once those shame barriers were removed, once someone like Kellyanne Conway could kill the part of herself... uh, (laughs) In Bowling Green. In Bowling Green that prevented people from simply... From simply, Let us never the, forget. The thing that stops serious adults from looking into the camera and lying or simply totally ignoring the question or acting aggrieved when they're making it up, all of that, once they killed that, a lot of people discovered that, wow, it turns out that the political barriers aren't what I thought yeah. they were. It's so a lot easier now. It's a lot easier. You get rid of the shame and the politics was simpler than we could have imagined. The local papers are gone. People aren't paying attention. And we can run roughshod over democratic institutions. So I agree. We have to fight this tooth and nail. We have to be very honest about what it looks like and what it feels like that just because it's America can't be a state can stop becoming a democracy right we saw that North Carolina was viewed in some international survey as not being a democratic state fair enough they're trying in other states too and they're trying in other states and by the way this is also part of voter suppression this is part of what um, uh, conservative activists have been doing across the country this is uh, the destruction of public sector unions this is about uh, stopping people who can stop them from having power in the voting booth But we need to think really hard about the larger forces and ask ourselves, what do we do to raise the political price for this kind of behavior? And I think anyone who says they have the the answer to that question is not being honest. I think it's a really, really hard and serious question that we're going to fight this on a bunch of different fronts, but we're going to be dealing with this for a long time until we figure out how to win this game the way Democrats do, right? Not immorally and not by destroying institutions, but in a way that actually uh, is equal to what's been brought against us, because right now we have lost a lot. Anyway. What, um, <laughs> Alyssa, what does it teach us about like, what Democrats can do? Obviously, so Love It was saying. let's talk about Democrats, yeah. because gerrymandering is gerrymandering, and they do it too. Yeah. And um, so everybody <laughs> but, should But it's good this, but when it's we good do then. it. Yeah. You, you had your gerrymander filibuster. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gerrybuster. <laughs> Love it, Buster. Um, love it, so Buster. In Illinois, Bring this energy to love it or leave it. <laughs> don't you worry. 
Um, in Illinois 3, there is a congressman, Dan Lipinski. He took his father's seat. He, his entire district is gerrymandered to keep him in the seat. He is the most conservative Democrat out there. He was the first. He voted against DACA. He voted against the Affordable Care Act. He was the first Boo. Democrat, I think, to march in the March for Life. He's completely pro-life. Right? So why does he have a seat? Because the Madigan machine in Chicago has gerrymandered it so he can keep it. So everyone should just like put in the back of their head, there's a wonderful woman, Marie Newman, who's running against him. She's primarying him. And she's a small business owner and an entrepreneur. And Nayroll and SEIU are behind her. But the real one, she's wonderful. But the real story is like, we all have to be held to the same standard. Gerrymandering is terrible. Yeah, it's right. Well, it, it also teaches us, by the way, that we focus on presidential race in 2020 as we should. We're all focusing on the 2018 congressional elections, but this is why you vote and fight and run in local and state elections. Like, this is why, like, this is why state legislature races really matter. Like, yeah, I mean, re- Republicans, Republicans do a lot of shit to stop voters that we don't do, but they don't gerrymander better than us. They just won all the elections. <laughs> no, and that's, that's the truth. Real. That's the truth. 2000, losing in 2010 was not just about us losing the House of Representatives. It was about us losing the right to draw the maps for that <laughs> census year, and we have been living with the consequences ever since on the state level, on the local level, and in Congress. And 2020 is the next census and the next time you get to draw the map. So as if there was one more thing to make this the most <laughs> important election of our lifetime in 2018, it is the party that wins 2018 is the party that gets to draw the maps. Um, I didn't even know that. Yeah. And we have some good news, too. By the way, in Missouri, this week, Tuesday, Mike Rivas, a, a 27-year-old procurement manager at Anheuser-Busch, squeaked out a win in a suburban Missouri statehouse district that Trump carried by nearly 30 points in 2016. Um, and the DCCC, by the way, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee just added seven more seats to their target list. So now we're at 101 seats at the, Dem- the DCC. That's cool. So it's good. Polls are getting a little tight, but we're adding more seats. So get to work. You yeah, just you're like not Barack gonna, Obama. The I polls are going to tighten. The knot in your stomach will not leave. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps you, reminds you of what's All happening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now? All right. So. Transition. (laughs) A seamless segue. Even as we campaign to win the House, we're also in a fight to win the Senate. The president of the Senate is a man named Mike Pence. Mike Pence uh, is uh, Donald Trump's closest advisor who has no idea what's happening at the White House (laughs) ever. He is informed of everything from the news, which brings us to a segment we call OK Stop. Here's how it works. We watch a clip when it piques our interest, when we're angry, we say, okay, stop, and then we talk about it. This week on OK Stop, Vice President and Botox enthusiast Mike Pence is... <laughs> I completely wow. agree. Filler. He gets a little... Save this for the clip, man. He gets a little in his forehead and a little in his soul. Uh, <laughs> currently in South Korea for the Olympic Games. When he got off the plane, he was asked about some news back in Washington. Let's roll the clip. Yeah, there are reports now that General Kelly and others in the White House have been aware of these allegations for several okay, months. Okay, stop. We have done uh, more than 100 podcasts. 
This might be the first time we've ever talked about Mike Pence. I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we wanted to do this clip. The staff sent around so many clips for tonight, and we couldn't figure out the clip. And then we saw the Mike Pence clip, and we're like, wait, yeah, we've never talked about like, Mike oh, that guy. Because yeah. where the fuck has he been the whole time? There he is. Do you believe the president is being well served by his senior staff? Okay, stop. say we're standing... I don't th- did anyone hear what the, the question, question was? The question was, do you think... <laughs> right. The question was... Good point, John. <laughs> Just thinking about the audience, guys. The question Mike Pence was asked is, lead up, blah, 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 I'm a reporter. Do you believe the president is being well served by his senior staff? Get your Air Force Base in Japan. We're on our way to the Olympics. Okay, stop. <laughs> that is some of the most mundane filibustering I've ever heard. <laughs> I've been to a billion interviews with Barack Obama, and he was never like, my tie's red, uh, my, sh- my shoes are on. We're, uh, I'm come thinking on. about having enchiladas for lunch. <laughs> um, and um, I learned as I awoke this morning of those developments. And so we'll- okay, stop. Just He heard about that when he woke up this morning. That's when Mike Pence, Donald Trump's, Right-hand man. <laughs> does, does that even work from a time zone perspective? Mike Pence uh, believes it is immoral to not be on Bethlehem time. <laughs> <laughs> a, scandal, a scandal that has been brewing in the administration for at least since last year yeah. about an abusive senior staffer. He just found out this morning. In fairness to Mike Pence, Donald Trump also learns most of his information when he wakes up in the morning from the news. <laughs> that's true. Also true. But like, also, if you're Mike Pence, would you ever go to South Korea not knowing what the hell Trump's going to tweet? No. I mean, like, would you want to be on the other side of the DMZ? <laughs> 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 I right? Yeah. We'll comment on any issues affecting White House staff yeah, when we get back to Washington. Briefly. Okay, stop. Just, that's a new rule, which is... I only can answer questions about Washington in Washington. <laughs> Washington stops at the water's edge. This is a, now a number of times when you found out, of, you're the vice president, you're number two in the administration, where you found out about something very late after a number of other senior staff. Okay, stop. stop. First of all, that was that was friend of the pod, Ashley Parker. That was my okay stuff, John. She was on the show on Thursday. Huge shout out to Ashley Parker. Hucking, just gunning a fastball in Mike Pence's head. And what happened was it hit him. <laughs> it bounced off for the reasons Love had mentioned. And yeah. he stared at, he's staring at her currently like, I'm going to kill you empathetically. Also, like, Ashley is so good at asking a question that nasty so polite so nice you are the president the vice president you are number two in the government you do not know shit about anything <laughs> ever she did work could for Maureen Dowd could you please comment on that not knowing shit about anything ever if there was Thank a you. if there was a thought bubble over Mike Pence's head right now I would say this is why my wife doesn't let me meet with women alone <laughs> <laughs> Even in the West Wing, have found out about it. Again, I understand we're standing here, but can you comment on why you often seem a little bit out of the loop on some of the same <laughs> You know, it's a great honor for me to serve as vice president. <laughs> president Trump has okay, been incredibly stop. generous with. 
how much Xanax does he take every morning? <laughs> that is unbelievable. I can't talk to my Instacart guy that calmly. <laughs> that was an answer he could have given to literally any Anything, question. Anyone. It's a great honor to be the vice God, president. <laughs> Responsibilities and opportunities he's given me to serve. Representing the United States on the foreign stage as we have here in Japan, as we will later today in South Korea, and of course at the Olympics. Okay, stop. Can't see this at home, but that is his Reagan smirk. Uh, <laughs> that kind of that thing he does. And man, of all the dipshit, mediocre politicians that have succeeded because of Donald Trump, we should just always remember that he is the luckiest. <laughs> <laughs> he took this to get out of a losing race in Indiana. He was not, he is as surprised as anybody <laughs> standing in South Korea, genuflecting before the biggest moron from New York he's ever raised money from. Because <laughs> he's thinking in the back of his head, like, I probably have a better chance of being president than most of these guys. <laughs> it's probably a pretty he's good He's thinking, chance. maybe I can defect to North Korea and work for less of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> That king looks pretty sweet. That's the Olympic strategy. Yeah. <laughs> being abducted. Also being involved in the legislative process, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And, uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll leave those White House staffing matters for when we get back. White cool. House staff matters. <laughs> That's what we got from Mike Pence. Thank you, moral hero. Um, when we come back, we'll have an interview with Wanda James. Yeah. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. We are so excited tonight that Wanda James is in the house. She is the owner of Simply Pure, a medical and recreational cannabis company right here in Denver. She and her husband were the first African-Americans to own a dispensary in Colorado. She's a former Navy lieutenant, an influential social justice activist, and political activist. Please welcome Wanda James. Hey. Thank you. Thank you. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Oh, good. We're great. Oh Your my mic goodness. works. Wow. All these people are here for you. I know. Um, so before you got into the cannabis business, you were affected 
personally by how our drug laws are weighted and enforced. Can you talk about your brother's story and what that experience taught you about the disproportionate impact of drug laws on young people who get arrested? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's crazy. So in 1999, I had the pleasure of meeting my brother um, for the first time. And when I spoke to him, he said, you know, I want you to know I just got out of prison. And he said he had a felony and he was in a maximum security prison. And I'm listening to this story and I'm like, oh my God, my brother murdered somebody, he hurt somebody, something horrible must have really happened. And he says, I got caught with four ounces of pot. I didn't believe him. I went to University of Colorado Boulder. I majored. <laughs> That's good. I majored, I majored in pot and so did everybody else, right? <laughs> so in my world, no one ever got arrested. We'd roll yeah. joints in front of Libby Hall. Does anybody remember Libby Hall? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and CUPD would walk by and be like, hey, kids, put that away. You'd be right. like, all right, get Roll back up again. <laughs> and then after I graduated, all of my friends were lawyers, doctors, business people, and they smoked pot, and no one ever went to jail. And when I met my brother, I was like, this can't be possible. You definitely did not get a 10-year prison sentence for four ounces of pot. So I took his case to a friend of mine in L.A. who happened to be a lawyer, and he opened up my brother's paperwork, closed it, put it on his desk, and he says, let me talk to you about something. 800,000 people a year are arrested for, at the time, 1999, for simple possession. 85% of those were black and brown, mostly boys between the ages of 17 and 24. It's called slave labor. America has never, never not had a slave labor class. So he finishes his thing in Texas and he comes out to Colorado and we get off of the Barack Obama 2008 presidential election. You guys know something about that, right? That was that, fun. Right? We've heard about that, yeah. yes. Yeah. We raised a lot of money for him here in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my husband and I decided to make this a political thing. We said, you know what? Let's open up a dispensary. We just spent, you know, a year in the room with the next president. We've been vetted. Um, we're both in the military. We've been vetted our entire life. I said, you know what? They can't make us criminals, so let's do this. We opened up... <laughs> We opened up a dispensary and started talking about it on TV, and all of our friends were like, girl, you going to jail? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. But you know what? The thing is, the more open you are about it, the less they can kind of touch you. So we have talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. We have talked about mass incarceration. We have talked about the 85% arrest rate with black and brown people. Here in Denver, 33% of the people who were arrested for simple possession were black. And how many black people have you guys seen in Denver? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, it, it, I mean, it was shocking that my brother went through that. Yeah. Oh, and he had to pick, oh, just real quick, this is the Please. most disgusting part of this, is my brother only did four and a half years in the maximum security prison, but to get out early, my brother picked cotton for four and a half years <laughs> in Texas. He had to pick 100 pounds of cotton a day to buy his freedom. Jeez. This wasn't 1865, by the way. Yeah. But it's horrible. Yeah, it is. It's disgusting. Um, Walk us through the process of how you mm -hmm. got into business. How does someone open a dispensary? <laughs> like, what are the, lo the hoops you have to jump through to do that? Um, well, in 2009, there were no loops because there were no rules. And so you went and you got a license to open up a wellness or a yoga studio. <laughs> <laughs> 
Everybody had yoga studios. <laughs> it was great. It was great. Um, but no, in 2009, there really weren't a lot of, of rules. Um, rules making started happening in 2010, 2011, 2012. Of course, now there are a tremendous amount of things that you've got to jump through. So lots of money. Uh, one to five million dollars probably to get into a dispensary. Um, here in Denver, there's a moratorium. So if you want a dispensary, you have to buy one. Um, you've got to go through a background check. They check everything from your student loans to your child support to all of your taxes. All that has to be cleared up. You have to be of good moral character. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite the runaround. Back when you started doing this, this was sort of, a, it was a new thing. Now you have lots of people talking about the cannabis industry. Yeah. You have publicly traded companies. Yeah. You have people all over Silicon Valley talking about yeah you know, venture capital investments into cannabis-related yep. companies. <laughs> there are not very many African-Americans in this space, despite the disproportionate impact on the African-American community that you were talking about earlier. I mean, how concerned are you about the way, the, the trajectory of the cannabis industry, and what things can we do to sort of course correct as we just started? You know, I mean, that's what we talk about all the time, right? So everybody is getting into this. And even here in Colorado, here's the amazing thing. If you have a drug felon, of drug felony, a cannabis possession. You can't own a cannabis business for 10 years from the discharge of your felony. Now, if you're a rapist or a murderer, you can do it within five years. So, yeah, go figure. So basically, when we look at all of the visionaries in cannabis are locked up. Because if you were growing weed in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, um, you're the visionary, right? You were doing it in your garage, kind of like, you know, Steve Jobs and all those guys, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's interesting, and we locked up our visionaries. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, we came back, the rebellion lived, and we taught a whole bunch of people in Colorado how to, you know, grow cannabis. And, but the problem that we're seeing, though, is black people, A, uh, ended up with the most felons, so we were cut out of the business. And then two, we didn't trust this, you know? I, I mean, my brother was arrested. People, cops busted into homes in, in inner city neighborhoods. So we have been very nervous about coming into this industry. Um, but we're now seeing uh, a resurgence of people fighting to get in. So we're seeing Massachusetts that has laws on the books that doesn't allow, or doesn't allow penal penalizing people who have drug felons. Mm -hmm. um, California and Oakland are trying to set up laws to allow more people uh, to get into the industry so that it is becoming more diverse. But even right now, 1% of all dispensaries, less than 1% of dispensary owners are black. Wow. Some news was made in San Francisco mm -hmm. uh, recently where <clears throat> marijuana was legalized mm -hmm. via ballot initiative in California. Uh, that started in January of this year. And then the district attorney in San Francisco went back and cleared a lot of convictions for people yep. who were busted with, with marijuana. And I'm, I'm curious, which seems like the right thing to do, of course, but I'm curious whether there's any momentum to do something here similar in Denver or in Colorado, and what can folks here do <laughs> to maybe make that a reality? So I saw today that the governor is considering um, letting uh, a number of people who are in jail for their third strikes for marijuana. Uh, we've been trying to fight these laws for a while. We've had a couple of bills that haven't been able to get our communities to be able to um, expunge people's records or seal their records if what they did would no longer be considered a felony. Uh, so we're trying really hard because I think, <clears throat> look, I'm not a fan of beer. But I don't think that anybody should go to jail for drinking beer. And I think that that's kind of the feel for cannabis right now. Whether you enjoy it or you don't enjoy it, nobody should be going to jail for the use of cannabis. Um, 
Uh, America's favorite fascist Keebler elf, uh, Jeff Sessions, <laughs> said, good people don't smoke marijuana. <laughs> Listen up, audience. He also continues to push, uh, despite so much evidence to the contrary, this notion of marijuana as a gateway drug to opioids and is somehow responsible for the opioid crisis. If he were sitting in this chair, what would you say to him? And, and can you tell him... Like, what are the people who you meet in your dispensary? What are they like? Who does smoke marijuana in, in Colorado these days? Educate him. Let's see. <laughs> Apparently, ah! these people. <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't seen the final numbers for last year, but I think we came up on $1.4 billion worth of sales oh, last shit. year in Colorado. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's about a billion people out there smoking. You know, here's the thing that we see with cannabis. If the people who drink beer, some of them smoke cannabis. The people that drink wine, some of them smoke cannabis. Moms, some of them smoke cannabis. College students, some of them smoke cannabis. White people, some of them smoke cannabis. Black people, some of them smoke cannabis. I, I mean, it's, there, is no, there is no demographic, and I just saw as well, too, that Republicans have now decided at the number of 51% that cannabis should be legal. Or right. should be legal. Republicans smoke cannabis. Oh, my God. I mean, really, there's, I have yet to meet anybody... Uh, well, I personally have not. I know they're out there. I have personally not met anybody that is completely anti-cannabis. Most people will say, ah, I tried it, but I didn't really feel good about it, so I just don't really smoke it. Good people smoke yeah. cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wanda Janes, you are a hell of an effective spokesperson for the cannabis industry. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for all awesome. your work for Barack Obama. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How are you guys doing out there? How do you, how do you pronounce it? Marijuana. <laughs> Marijuana. I'm, it's a local thing. I've <laughs> seen it written but never heard it said. Right. <laughs> As you may or may not know, Donald Trump's favorability numbers have been inching up after the State of the Union. Uh, Republican numbers have been on the upswing as well. Uh, we obviously all, like you, reacted to the news with shock and despair. Um, however, we pulled ourselves up from the doldrums. Uh, 
and realize that there's probably a better way to react to the vacillations of pole numbers, and we thought we'd tell you about them in the form of a game. Uh, <laughs> now for a game we call Polar Coaster. <laughs> Went with the dash, okay. Uh, would someone, would you, the dash? <laughs> yeah, if it's an adjective, it's a dash. Polar Coaster game? Polar Coaster game, hmm. We'll talk about the dash after the show. <laughs> Thank goodness it's an audio medium. So confused. For the people listening at home, there was no dash <laughs> between polar and coaster. Would somebody out there like to play the game? <laughs> Travis is in the house. And hi, hi, what's your name? Hi, I'm Gina. Gina. Yes. Hi, Gina. Hi. Are you from Denver? Originally, I'm from Colorado, not from Denver. I am a native. Native of Colorado. Uh, but now you live in Denver. Yes. You're equivocating. You're being a real pence about this. What's it's a thing here. It's a thing here. Where are you from? Pueblo. Pueblo. And how long have you been in Denver? Three years. Great. Yeah. Great. What's the defensiveness for? Trust me, it's a thing. Ask everybody. And you guys each have your cards. I have my card. Got the cards. Start, let's start the game. Earlier this week, the Quinnipiac Taco Bell poll showed that Democrats... <laughs> Uh, are losing ground to Republicans in a generic ballot. Their lead shrunk from 14 points to just seven points. What should you do with this information? Is it A? Is it A, calmly, methodically debunk the poll in a 24-part tweet storm and hope for a retweet from Nate Silver? <laughs> is it B? Point out in a 500-word Facebook post why the person who conducted the poll runs a company that has refused to stop advertising on Breitbart. <laughs> or is it C? Remember that your friend Todd went to Quinnipiac and he was a moron, so these pollsters must also be morons. <laughs> <laughs> Tough hit on Quinnipiac is a D. Get off your ass this weekend and go knock on some fucking doors, for God's sake. <laughs> God damn. Well, what's your answer? I feel like we should knock on some fucking doors? <laughs> there you go. One for one. You got it. <laughs> Did it make the noise? Yeah. <laughs> the altitude. <laughs> Question number two. It's nine months until the midterm elections, and polls show Donald Trump's favorability numbers slowly inching upwards. Do you remember who was ahead in GOP polls just seven months before the last Iowa caucus? Was it A? Ben Carson, who had no idea he was running for president. <laughs> was it B? Scott Walker, who had just been caught throwing union members into a well. <laughs> Was it C? Christine O'Donnell, that nice woman everyone thought was a witch. <laughs> <laughs> or was it D? Marco Rubio. Sorry, this is an obvious joke answer. Marco Rubio never led in any polls. <laughs> <laughs> and he would be a tragic figure if he didn't think he was the hero in a saga we are all blessed to be observing from afar. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that had some real answers in it. Yeah, so, wait a minute. Um, one minute? What, what do you think is, what happens here? Phone a friend. Is it Ben Carson, Scott Walker, Christine O'Donnell, or Marco Rubio? Christine O'Donnell. <laughs> <laughs> it's so rare I get to say, not even close. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted to get a little shit It was Scott you. Walker. You've already gotten it wrong. There's no way out of it. <laughs> we knew you were trouble. And you wouldn't even tell us where you were from. <laughs> Question number three. 
Just days before the Alabama special election, Doug Jones was losing to Roy Moore in polls 49% to 44%. How did Doug Jones end up winning? Was it A, teams of volunteers on the ground and extremely motivated Democratic electorate in the hope that Alabama would do what's right? B, millions of MS-13 gang members flooded over the border <laughs> and intimidated poll workers into letting them vote for a centrist Democrat. <laughs> centrist really got me. Was it C, the Illuminati, whose headquarters is at the Denver airport. You can look it up. Or <laughs> <laughs> was it D? Alabama Republicans, moved by a sudden feeling of democratic bonhomie, <laughs> removed a number of barriers to voting, including a punitive voter ID law after Jeff Sessions, weeping, <laughs> said in a press conference, I don't care if Republicans lose. Voting is the bedrock of American political <laughs> life. God, if only that were true. That's an A. It was A. You've gotten it right. Final question. Oh, no, me. Final question. Uh, following Donald Trump's historic State of the Union address, where he managed to finish the speech before blundering into an obstruction of justice charge <laughs> within, 12 years, within 12 hours, 48% uh, of respondents to a CNN poll said they had a very positive reaction to the speech. What is the proper way to respond to this information? Was it, was it A, text your Trump supporter cousin, tell him he's uninvited to your wedding because you can't have that energy on your special day. <laughs> was it B? Tweet at CNN pundits explaining why they should not televise the State of the Union as it's wrong to give Trump a platform. <laughs> oh, these are hitting liberals a little, aren't they? <laughs> Some people were like, oh, that was my tweet. <laughs> I still hate Melissa. Can I delete it? don't come, huh, when, when it's directed at our own. <laughs> This is a multiple choice question for each of you. <laughs> Was it C? Remember that George W. Bush and Barack Obama both had State of the Unions with a 48% positive reaction from CNN and both of them still lost control of the House that same year. <laughs> or, or was it D? Print a photo of Trump, Ryan, and Pence during the speech place it under glass and preservative, and etch in a piece of tungsten carbide a series of pictograms that tell the story of these three men causing the downfall of civilization. <laughs> then bury the photo and plaque under an obelisk in the desert so that future humans will find it and understand. <laughs> you punch these up. Can I, can I offer an alternative? Wait, what, what was your answer? Can I offer an alternative? No. <laughs> no. You can offer an alternative it's when you... It's C, you're right. <laughs> uh, you've won the game. Yay! You'll take your parachute gift card back to Pueblo. Uh, but everyone should also remember, even though you've won, and even though these polls will go up and down, we can't assume we'll win the house. We have to stop reacting to polls and do what we can to win, which is why you should go to crooked.com slash crooked7, look up your closest swing district, and donate as much as you can to the Democratic candidate. And that's all you can do. And that's Polar Coaster. Thank you for playing. When we come back... Questions. Q&A. <laughs> Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast 
will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And we're back. We have time for about four or five questions. Travis is right there with the mic. Hi. Um, first of all, I want to thank you guys so much for kind of getting out there and trying to help us DACA kids. Um, They're clapping for you, not us. <laughs> now my question is going to sound really dumb. <laughs> no, seriously, though, I've, I've lived here for a very long time, and this is the first time I've ever been scared of... Uh, not, you know, being a citizen, so. We love you! <laughs> so, um, what chances do you guys think we have at the Utah 4th? You win. Oh, yeah, M. Night Shyamalan over there makes us cry and twist on the question. I was going to say, I don't think I'm emotionally prepared to answer a question. Look, it's tough. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, to be honest, I don't know anything about the district. I know that obviously Donald Trump did extremely poorly in Utah. I yep. think that was mainly because of Donald Trump himself and not because of a surge in Democratic support in Utah. But I don't know. What do you think? Dan? That's the old Jim Matheson district, right? Yes, that so, got gerrymandered. So, it, yeah, a Democrat held that district before he got gerrymandered out of their seat. Oh. And look, if it is a plus six Republican district, it is 100% winnable in a way. That's true. And so does that mean it's easy? Does that mean the most likely tipping point to 218 is Utah 4? No. But what has, in 2006, when Democrats took the House, what happened was is we ran people everywhere. And we won districts that no one ever thought you would win because the wave came. And so if there are people on the ground organizing and we have a good candidate, there is a legit shot that you can win that district. You just got to fucking work for it, right? Mm-hmm. And so that it, so no one, there's no district that we should write off. And as John pointed this out earlier, the DCCC has expanded their map to 101 districts. But we can do better than that. It's not up to the DCCC to decide mm-hmm. Utah 4 is going to be a target. I don't know if it's on that list. But the people in Utah 4 can go win that district, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I just wasn't... I know it wasn't your question, but I just want to say thank you for coming here. Thank you for asking the question. Thank you for um, talking about being a dreamer, the stakes involved, because I think these cowards in Congress who won't look a dreamer in the eye uh, before taking a vote, if they hear the stories, if people understand the individuals we're talking about, the stories, the contributions to society, to the military, 20,000 teachers, it is a no-brainer decision. So thanks for fighting for this. 
Denver, you've been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you to Wanda James. Thank you guys. Register to vote. We'll see you later. <laughs>